Tudors were the great image makers of their time, glorified by some of the world's most magnificent paintings and extant textiles and embroideries, displaying both their majesty and their rituals, something very much expected of royalty during this period, but also something very much used by them to emphasise and promote their divine authority as sovereign, promoting not only their status, but their power too. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. As a dynasty, the Tudors certainly understood marketing and brand development, engineering a court aesthetic featuring, as well as promoting, their very own Tudor heraldry. And they achieved this through the use of textiles, with Henry VII creating a new court position solely for the purpose of repairs and adding the embroidered badges of the House of Tudor to existing tapestries. And according to Ellery Lynn in her absolutely stunning book, Tudor Textiles, the fashion for tapestries featuring heraldic devices was particularly an early Tudor phenomenon. Close your eyes and think of Henry VIII as a fit and healthy young man and as the ageing monarch. What do you see? Power. And that power is exemplified not only by the man himself, that's a given, but also by his garments and the textiles he and the rest of the Tudor dynasty surrounded themselves with and wore. They used them as an emblem of that power. This is a fascinating journey into a world of the unheralded secular display of textile and embroidered opulence and luxury. The House of Tudor includes the reigns of Henry VII, his son Henry VIII and his children uh, Edward VI, Mary I and finally Elizabeth I. This was the dawning of the concept of humanism, an outlook attaching prime importance to the human rather than the divine or the supernatural, as from previous eras, and where influences from the French and Burgundian courts promoting ideals of chivalry and art were quickly absorbed and adopted by the English court. And this influence from abroad would certainly have impacted on the choice of textiles displayed and worn at the Tudor royal courts. Add to this the notion of magnificence which, to the 15th century person, was seen as a vital component of strong, sound governance, strengthening and legitimising their rule. And we begin to understand the Tudor's demand for this overt display of luxury and opulence. 
Henry VII leads off the Tudor dynasty, taking the throne of England by right of conquest. He inherited several hundred tapestries, going on to commission tapestry sets of his own, many showcasing classical narratives and scholarship, even commissioning an expensive arras depicting his victory at the Battle of Bosworth Field, winning him the crown of England, reminiscent of William the Conqueror's embroidered triumph in the Bayeux Tapestry. And it was Henry VII who developed a strict hierarchy for hanging court tapestries and textiles, emphasising the role of the value of the textile on display, reflecting that of the role of the proceedings, able to transform any space worthy for royal use, because this was also a time where the English royal court was highly mobile, and so too were their textiles. Passing into the royal court saw an increase in the richness of the tapestries as one advanced. Outer chambers would have been hung with woollen tapestries. Inner chamber tapestries would have included highlights of silk and the innermost chamber would have used gold brocaded silk damask or velvet embroidered with the Tudor royal arms in gold and silver thread, defining these as tools of not only comfort and luxury but also of royal image and myth-making. You have to admire the Tudors. This was a time for a huge step forward in the display and use of textiles and embroidery as a strategy for royal promotion, power and status, not only to their subjects, but also abroad politically. One tapestry set made by Willem de Panamaker for the royal court actually specified in the contract how much silk and gold was to be used, not to be frugal, but to ensure he used enough. Henry VII secured his hold on the throne, restoring the nation's finances, as well as strengthening the judicial system, enabling him to successfully maintain control of England to pass on to his son. And that son, Henry VIII, doted on textiles using a lavish, sumptuous excess of fabrics and embroidery. Nicola Schulman's book, Graven with Diamonds, The Many Lives of Thomas Wyatt, notes this. Henry made a cult of cloth, swathing himself in luxurious fabrics as effusively as his predecessors had donned their furs. Books wore brilliant velvet jackets. Harnesses came sleeved in satin and velvet. Everything he valued was covered in textiles, including his ample frame. And Henry VIII's era is fascinating because it demonstrates just how important fabrics and embroidery were from a fashionable and political perspective. A man of excesses, Henry was noted to have spent the equivalent of over $3 million every year on one of the most outwardly expressive means of showmanship, his clothing. It should be remembered Henry became king at just 18, soon realising he could use and emphasise his masculinity, virility and status through the exaggerated silhouettes and richness of his clothing. 
This became an influential tool, defining the aesthetic of fashion for both men and women of the Tudor era. And Henry VIII was perhaps the first king to fully understand that power and the role of clothing as both a persuasive and political tool. Rosie Lesso, in a 2020 post on the Thread website, writes, From these fine fabrics, the king's personal tailor, Stephen Jasper, produced lavish, sumptuous doublets and mantles, inspired by foreign lands, taking inspiration from cultures in Russia, Germany, Hungary and Turkey, which never failed to make a dramatic impact. Jasper fashioned outfits in dazzling colours for Henry to wear, adding to their theatrical impact, combining deep shades of blue and red, thick piled velvet with shimmering satins in silver, gold and purple. Rosie goes further, writing that Henry was a lover of elaborate embroidery, cutwork and eyelets. He had swathes of intricate detailing incorporated into his costumes. Some of his clothing was said to be so encrusted with diamonds, rubies and other gemstones that you could barely see the fabric underneath. Remember, this was a time when laws were in place restricting the finest furs, fabrics and embroideries for royalty and the nobility, adding even more weight and significance as a marker of social rank. Saxon Henry's website offers insights into the movement of Henry's court from one cold, unfurnished palace to another. But rest assured, before him went retinues of wagons laden with all that was necessary to create a suitable royal court setting. Observers estimated the horses alone needed for this movement of people and goods to be between 1,000 and 5,000, depending on the size of the court travelling with him. Royal progresses were well planned, often during the grass season, that of freshly cut hay, when hunting was plentiful, whereby in contrast, random moves were made during the winter months, within the vicinity of the capital. So their textiles had to be easily transportable, warming and showy. This was a representation of the royal court, after all. So tapestries, furnishings, carpets, linens and clothing, worthy of a king, went with him. This idea of textiles as a movable decor began to change by the end of the Elizabethan era, when the nobility began buying vast country estates, trying to entice a visitation from Her Majesty on her extremely prestigious royal progresses. Globalisation, exploration, an early sense of empire and religious unrest all inform this great Tudor period. And according to historian John Guy, England was economically healthier, more expansive and more optimistic under the Tudors than at any time since the Roman occupation. This was a time of renewal following the Black Death and a suppression in agriculture. The population grew, stimulating economic growth and accelerating the commercialisation of agriculture. As a result, 
there was an increase in the production and export of one of England's greatest assets, wool, encouraging and promoting English trade. One great Tudor theme was the Reformation, transforming England from Catholic to Protestant. But the other great theme attributed to the Tudor period is that of textiles, with textile merchants becoming some of the most important and influential early entrepreneurs of this time. Was the protection of this trade in precious textiles to form the basis for the development of the early English Royal Navy in the time of Henry VIII and from the time of Elizabeth I, the navigation of new global sea routes? That's research for a naval historian. But there is a link because in 1576, five of Her Majesty's ships were directed to protect merchant ships in the Channel and North Sea and these would have most certainly been carrying textiles, as the powerful textile merchants were known to have lobbied for protection. And the exploration broadening English horizons influenced the different ingredients used for dyes from countries such as Russia, Persia, India, Mexico, Spain and China. Expeditions to the New World also forged depictions of Native American life and culture, colonial life and plants, and were of great historical importance. Jacques Lemoyne, a French artist and cartographer, was a member of one such expedition, tasked with map-making and recording details of the Native peoples and their culture. He produced a book, Lemoyne's La Clef de Champs, The Key to the Meadow, published in 1586 in Blackfriars in London, specifically for the purpose as a pattern book for use by artists and craftspeople and embroiderers. His motives can be seen on surviving embroideries from this time, such as the Bacton altar cloth, where Ellery Lynn in Tudor Textiles writes this, They feature alongside little embroidered sailors and mysterious sea creatures which loomed large in the Tudor consciousness as a result of these voyages. The Bacton altar cloth is considered a precious relic, believed to be part of a sole surviving dress of Elizabeth I, given to Bacton Church by the Queen herself, possibly in memory of her personal attendant, Blanche Parry, originally from Bacton, who remained by the Queen's side for 56 years. Made of cream-coloured silk and cloth of silver, a fabric woven with a silver-wrapped or spun weft. And remember, under sumptuary laws, this was reserved for members of the royal family only. It was embroidered with an elaborate design including coloured flowers, caterpillars and deer using silk, silver and gold thread. The expert workmanship indicates an elite owner and has similarities to a dress she wore depicted in the rainbow portrait using symbols from popular emblem books including eyes, ears and the serpent of wisdom. This painting has been attributed to Marcus Gearhouse the Younger. 
This rare textile indicates the importance of trade, not only in luxury cloth, but also exotic dyes of Indian indigo and Mexican cochineal. A stunning portrait of Edward VI, circa 1547, associated with the workshop of Master John, depicts the young king standing regally astride richly coloured eastern carpets under a magnificent cloth of estate, fringed with silk and bordered with pearls, as well as a chair softened by tasselled cushions fringed in silk. The painting's exotically plush and lavish depiction of textiles portrays Edward's majesty and authority, even though he was still only a boy. Even his clothing featuring furs, feathers and embroidery used what looks like metal threadwork and along with his commanding, confident stance, very reminiscent of his father, supports the Tudor ideal of majesty. What he's actually doing is mimicking what his father and grandfather had done before him, promoting the brand, the Tudor brand, using textiles as symbols of power and authority. Edward's reign was short and his elder sister Mary soon found herself in residence in the Tower in power as the first Virgin Queen of England. Her marriage to Spain's Prince Philip united the Tudor and Habsburg dynasties, at the same time reuniting England with the Holy See of Rome. Philip's flagship galley was said to be resplendent in scarlet, crimson and gold, carrying hundreds of carved chests, brimming with a wardrobe overshadowing even that of Henry VIII's or Francis I's pomp and pageantry on display at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Philip boarded his flagship a prince and disembarked a king. Reports of Mary and Philip's marriage in 1554 vary from one of the most extraordinary and beautiful of the 16th century to simply average and a grand affair. Winchester Cathedral was bedecked in fine cloth of gold, inside and out, featuring a raised platform covered with carpets so that everyone could see the proceedings. A musical composition using horns, trumpets and other instruments, something relatively new for this era, played and the cathedral walls were draped with flags, carpets and standards. Officiated by five deacons and two subdeacons, all wearing cloth of gold, Bishop Gardner wore a scarlet and gold chasuble with a cloth of gold cope over his mass vestments. Mary's dress was made of a rich, delicate cloth with a wide border and featured embroidered purple satin sleeves set with pearls and lined with purple taffeta. Philip dressed to match Mary. Her reign lasted only five years. The beginnings of change can be seen in her sister Elizabeth's reign, certainly not in the opulence and luxury of dress, but in the prodigious scale of display represented by her father Henry VIII, especially in his bold and showy pageantry on show at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. 
Elizabeth was known for her wit, wisdom and intelligence, forging the Elizabethan aesthetic, replacing that grand scale of tapestries and murals with the intimate, the private, the coded and the small. It shouldn't be forgotten, though, that her father left the coffers more than a little depleted through his lavish spending, so perhaps a lack of money was a consideration here too. Miniatures became hugely popular and fashionable during her reign, with Nicholas Hilliard, a master of the art, often deploying secret symbols within his paintings, something highly favoured by Elizabeth, who loved codes and games at her court. This was also a time when soft furnishings for the home, especially for the wealthy, made overt use of sumptuous fabrics decorated in a variety of embroidery techniques. In a painting by an unknown artist from 1575, King Edward and the Pope, Edward sits next to his father's bed, which is furnished in crimson cloth of gold, the linen sheets and pillows embroidered with gold, and gold tassels. A valance circa 1532-36 made of light cream silk taffeta with a linen canvas backing is decorated with an arabesque design incorporating acorns and honeysuckle worked in black silk velvet cutwork featuring Henry's and Anne Boleyn's initials. A bed valance from the 16th century uh, was made using silk velvet with padded cutwork of silver tissue embroidered in coloured silks and couched metal threads. It features a repeating pattern incorporating classical vases, floral motifs and leafy stems, terminating with monsters' heads. This grotesque style, refer referencing grottos where these decorations were found, was popular at this time. A tester circa 1550 from France using satin cutwork on silk satin embroidered in silk thread makes use of a strapwork design framing musical, floral and these highly unusual animal motifs. A stunning English embroidered curtain from the early 17th century features flowers, fruits and insects, all popular motifs from this time. The rose, cornflower, strawberry, pomegranate, snail, butterfly and spider are all easily identifiable. An English cushion cover dating from circa 1600 of silk satin embroidered with silk metal thread comprises heart-shaped compartments, each filled with a different plant motif, including borage, marigold, lily, bluebell, columbine and pansy, referencing the use of botanical books as models for embroidery designs. A seal burse or bag dating from 1596 to 1603 for the Great Seal of England was made of rich velvet and satin, magnificently embroidered with silver and gold thread. It was given to a servant and repurposed into a cushion cover, a common practice from this period. And finally, an Italian serviette from 1550 to 1600 made from linen embroidered with unbleached linen in satin and stem stitches features a band of bobbin lace for the edging, 
also worked in unbleached linen thread. Even unbleached linen was made to look opulent and regal. Well, even though I've simply skimmed the surface of the magnificence of Tudor textiles and embroidery, it's still an eye-opening reflection of what they probably would have considered commonplace and everyday. For our modern-day appreciation, though, it's a foray into the unimaginable extravagance and uh, opulence. So thank you very much for your time uh, listening to this amazing history. I'm so very grateful. Stitch Safari's now reached over 4,000 downloads and that's all thanks to you. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Until my next episode of Stitch Safari, bye for now. Mm -hmm.